Welcome back to part two of Critical Thinking. So we're going to move on now to the second major section of our talk today, and that is proper deliberation and how critical thinking is processed. Proper deliberation is the use of reason to think clearly and truthfully. It involves the process of critical thinking, what we call critical thinking, thinking logically and rationally. It is said that we live in a post-truth culture, one that is driven by personal emotions, opinions, and desires rather than by critical reasoning, which instead creates a culture of arbitrary choice. Reality becomes whatever one wants it to be. Truth, that is what is known as, quote, what corresponds to reality, unquote, becomes repressed by distorted and ambiguous language. Phrases like fringe theory, counter-knowledge, and alternative truth all undermine the essential content of truth, while accusations of misinformation, extreme views, conspiracy theories, and fear-mongering are often used to paint truth with an attitude of skepticism. The best defense, the most reliable one, is for every person to learn how to think clearly and critically through the process of their reason. This entails pausing to identify various factual information and to consolidate it into evidence-based conclusions. The process necessitates a measure of humility and understanding that one does not know everything. Furthermore, its goal is not to disparage another, but to distinguish between claims that can be validated and those that cannot. You might have heard one of Mark Twain's famous quips that he's credited with saying once, quote, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so, unquote. <laughs> A lot of truth in that, isn't there? So the message in all this is that one should approach the acquisition of truthful information with a healthy dose of thoughtfulness and reflection in order to not swallow the easy bait of fallacy. This involves a great measure of humble discernment in analyzing information sources for accuracy and truthfulness. Furthermore, it necessitates the personal acquisition of both the knowledge and the skill set for valid reasoning. Let's look at some of the everyday examples of how this can be accomplished. First of all, is the need for screening sources for accuracy and truthfulness. How many times have you been watching television and a well-known Hollywood actor, stylishly dressed and surrounded by fashionably appointed furnishings, looks toward you, and begins to describe in a smoothly delivered manner the importance of a unique and novel treatment for a common malady, or a new product of a popular company, or endorses a particular person or cause. 
citing that it has been proven beneficial by, quote, many studies and testimonials, unquote. It has become accepted and promoted by, quote, many experts, unquote, as well. Though this illustration may be somewhat over-dramatized, it is at least representative of many misrepresentations we are exposed to every day. How do we go about processing this information for accuracy and truthfulness? Here's some thoughts. Number one, ask yourself, what are the qualifications of the agent? Is he or she an authentic expert in the field of reference? Or is the information only one of personal favor or promotional interests? Do we give credence to the agent's information solely because he or she is a favorite personality? How is their trust and accuracy authenticated? Number two, is reliable documentation and supporting factual information present? Can the truth claims be easily verified? Search scientific articles, online professional statistics, and comparison reviews, consumer reports, national and state associations' positions. Fact-check that which you hear as much as possible. Number three, ask yourself, who stands to gain by the acceptance of this information? Is this a self-serving promotion by the agent or the supporting company? Could there be commercial institution bias at play? Number four, are the studies, testimonials, and experts referred to, are they really authentic and representative of the large picture, or instead a narrow selection of source material? Were the studies properly designed and performed in a scientific manner? Was there a control group with which to compare the results? How were the persons giving their testimonials chosen? Were they compensated in some way? What experts were identified? Were they truly experts within the field of reference? Do they represent the true consensus of opinion, or are they exceptions to the norm? Were the experts compensated in any manner by their promoting institution or company? Number five. Is the information presented a form of cherry-picking in which only the supporting information of a particular product or cause is presented, and to the contrary, ignoring any contradictory evidence of information? A critical thinker would challenge, I want the facts, all the facts, in order to make their own informed decision. A similar misrepresentation is found in what is called selective windowing, whereby selective information is presented that does not represent the whole, while other germane but contrary information is intentionally omitted. So this is a situation where they only give you what they want you to know and hides or omits that which is contrary to their claims. Number six is the Trojan horse some call it counter-knowledge. And this is the form of including false information within an argument generally true in appearance. Untrue information is embedded in authentic information. 
in a subtle effort to have persons accept the whole, both truth and falsity combined. This often is exercised by offering several truthful statements initially, then adding one or two untruths that may sound true, though they are not. It then becomes relatively easy to convince others to accept the false statements along with the factual ones. It's the matter of swallowing the hook with the bait. Now, many other forms of false and misleading representations can be elucidated, but suffice it to say that it is ever-present and can easily distort our perceptions of what is true and authentic in the process of making beneficial decisions. Granted, it's a rare person who has the time or inclination to ask all these questions in the course of their daily bombardment with all kinds of solicitations and promotional information. Nonetheless, the point to be made is that some form of critical considerations is essential in the search for honest and reliable information on which to make responsible decisions. It's like a quote by Alfred Lord Tennyson, in which he said, quote, A lie which is half a truth is ever the blackest of lies, unquote. Now, along with sorting out the truth claims between what is factually true and what is factual misrepresentation, then there is still the need for developing the skill of sound reasoning. Critical thinking involves much more than developing the discrimination between information that is true and that which is not. It also involves learning and practicing the discipline of thinking well. That is to say, learning to make reliable inferences and conclusions using a method or a process of valid reasoning. Formal logic, the discipline of sound reasoning, is posited upon two main approaches. They form the tools one uses to think rationally and to avoid the many logical fallacies. Now, there is much more that could be said about logic, its two major forms being formal logic and informal logic. While formal logic deals mostly with the form or structure of a syllogism or propositional argument, informal logic deals more with the truthfulness or the veracity of the propositions in a syllogism or a logical argument. So because we're dealing with decision-making, we're going to drill down exclusively today in the branch that's referred to as informal logic. And informal logic involves identifying what are known as the logical fallacies. Now, what a fallacy is, is an error in logic. It is a type of mistake in reasoning. Some will be errors of omission, of information, others will be statistical errors of interpretation, while others may contain false assumptions. All contain mistakes in how ideas are presented and organized. Now, next time you observe a political discussion or a product advertisement, keep these logical fallacies in mind. In the interest of time, I will only present several so you get the idea of some of the most common of the logical fallacies. However, if you have any interest in others, 
I have about 20 other logical fallacies listed and explained on my website, which is entitled reasonandreflection.org. You can find them listed with descriptions under the topic called reason, and then a subtopic, informal logic, logical fallacies. But let's get through a few of these. We've got a little bit of time left. Number one are the fallacies of irrelevance. These are fallacies which are primarily diversionary. By introducing an irrelevant claim or concept, it detracts from the main issue at hand. One that's commonly used is what's called attacking a straw man. And the straw man fallacy is one of the most frequently used fallacies in the political sphere. Uh, It consists of redefining a person's position in a manner to either exaggerate or weaken his or her position, making it easier to refute. This is often accomplished in one or the other of two ways. The first is to alter the original premises, making them broader or narrower than their initial intent. It would be like uh, by the use of saying, oh, what you're really saying is that, or what he really should have said is that. It's where the opponent reshapes the premises of the argument in a form more to their benefit. The other version is when the opponent subtly replaces all the actual premises with an expression of implication like, the real reason you say that is, oftentimes this alternative of redefining a premises is performed in such an extreme manner that no one can agree with it, especially when the alternative is presented as the rule rather than the exception. Substituting an original premise with a modified version defined by the opponent is a version of the straw man fallacy. The straw man fallacy distorts the original premises just enough to make it weak. For example, one might say, this car has had to have a lot of expensive repairs lately. I think it's time to buy a newer car. A straw man fallacy may be something like, oh, the wife responding, you must think we need to buy a fancy new car like Dan did with his Mercedes. In this instance, the original premise is weakened by the hyperbolic rephrasing, implying the purchase of a very expensive car, which may not at all have been intended by the original comment. Now, a corollary to this is what's called the red herring. A red herring fallacy is one in which someone introduces an extraneous claim which does not contribute, but rather diverts the discussion into another area of consideration. The claim may, in fact, be true, but it doesn't have anything to do to confirm or refute the initial topic of discussion. Instead, it changes the conclusion and changes the conversation into a different one altogether. You see this in television news interviews, Uh, They are typical examples of this technique where a direct question is asked, like, uh, do you support this bill before Congress? And the respondent, hesitant to commit either way, will often divert the question by introducing a peripheral, although sometimes true, comment, such as, well, the last time we faced a bill like this, it was more bipartisan than this bill is because, and go on and on thereby diverting him having to answer directly the question that was presented. So 
The straw man fallacy changes the original premise by inferring a different meaning, while the red herring fallacy changes the conclusion where it takes the question in a different direction than that which was asked. Another common one you will see is the ad hominem uh, fallacy, which is Latin for to the man. And this is a fallacy when an opponent attacks the character or the intentions of a person rather than your argument. An argument's soundness should succeed or fail on its own merits, not the character of the individual. So ad hominem fallacies may occur as those of guilt by association. That's a bad person, so anything they say cannot be worthwhile listening to. It's the questioning of intentions or motives of the speaker version in which they may say, I believe what he really says is because he's not worthwhile listening to. Politics is rampant with the ad hominem fallacy, whereby the labeling or branding of other people uh, in all types of ways is used to undermine their validity and their integrity. And this fallacy is often associated with that of repetition fallacy as a means of persistently branding a person or defacing their character without any verification of their claims. Now, there are many others. Uh, there are those that are fallacies of faulty authority, whereby truth is uh, inferred because a person is famous, they're powerful, they're in positions of uh, authority, or just popular opinion where people jump on the bandwagon because everybody else does it. There's the appeal to tradition and the appeal to novelty. Uh, there are all these ways that uh, we tend to buy into fallacies because of uh, an uh, unreliable authority that we place in individuals because of their position in society. There's also the fallacies of cause and effect. Uh, it's the old dictum used to say, uh, correlation does not imply causation. Just because two events are frequently seen together does not mean that one necessarily causes the other. There's additionally the fallacy of neglect of a common cause. There's the fallacy of casual oversimplification and the confusion between necessary and that of sufficient conditions for a consequence to occur. There's the slippery slope fallacy. And then finally, there are the common informal fallacies that you see more and more. Uh, for example, the circular argument, which it really doesn't arrive at anything more than what the original proposition would say. There is the begging of the question uh, fallacy in which the response is inferred in the question that's asked. Uh, you see this a lot in uh, biased news reporters by asking questions that are not really questions. Uh, they frame the question to point towards an inferred proper answer. Uh, there's the either-or fallacy or that which is called the exclusion of the middle fallacy, where uh, 
a argument is presented, it's either this is right or that's right, and it doesn't allow for any uh, middle uh, solution or any uh, neutral solution. Um, there's that of moral equivalency, where two things may be compared that are not morally equivalent. There's the proof by lack of evidence, where people will say there's this is true because, but they really don't have evidence to back it up. There's the appeal to emotion, and there's the appeal to uh, tradition. There's faulty assumptions, and there's what you'll hear politicians talk a lot about, non sequitur, which means uh, it does not follow, where people will present statistics and propositions or uh, principles of argument, but they don't the result that they claim does not follow through the propositions that they've offered. Now, I know you're getting tired of all this, uh, and it should be clear that we live within a confusing world of fallacy, uh, both those which are self-derived and those that are offered by others. So how is one to negotiate through this mire of misinformation and misrepresentation? Uh, the answer lies in the discipline of logic. Logic provides the tools with which to approach decision-making in a manner removed from the attachments of emotion or fallacious reasoning. In terms of the moral responsibility, it is an essential skill to acquire and to exercise regularly. Now, the final section of this I want to go through in one minute, and that's the proper use of motivation and intentions. And I'm not doing justice to this, but I want to finish with at least a brief statement. Action theory, philosophical theory of how actions occur, holds that the process of making decisions is rooted in one's needs, then transitions to one's motivations and intentions. Because of this, it may well be wise, in the sense of making good decisions, to ask oneself what his or her needs, motivations, and intentions are. For if our intentions and motivations are not sincere and benevolent, our actions will never be benevolent or just. That's it for part two, folks, of critical thinking. I hope you've enjoyed or benefited somewhat in this rather lengthy discussion of making good decisions from the aspect of critical thinking. As always, the uh, abridged transcript of these web uh, podcasts will be on my website, reasonandreflection.org. I hope you're doing well. Godspeed, Moggs. Welcome back to part two of Critical Thinking.